we sang uh, a debtor to mercy alone here as we finished and our singing that is and I asked Jeremy to select that hymn for us because the hymn is uh, categorically uh, a hymn about one thing it's about assurance um, and so uh, that's apparently the purpose that Augustus top lady wrote the hymn and um, and I would encourage you uh, I'm I don't uh, address a lot of hymns here I, I I'm grateful that we have an emphasis on faithful hymnody. I'm grateful that we have a, that we hear about the hymns each week. I think that's very important. And and I think that um, you know I want to encourage you to recognize the that the reason that faithful hymnody is so important is because it 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 lays out for us in a way that uh, is more accessible to us thoughtfully the truths that are particularly important to us as God's people living here in sinful flesh in a sinful world. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I look at this hymn and I think about the words here and there have been a few changes through the years and, uh, and, and that's fine. And I'd like to draw your attention to a phrase that apparently was in the original that top lady wrote the very last uh, two lines more happy but not more secure the glorified spirits in heaven now what top lady was getting at here was that as we're here on this earth what he is affirming is that our security in Christ is no different than that which those in heaven enjoy. And that's a very, very important idea for us as God's people. And, of course, where we've been heading for the last few weeks here is a walk of holiness. Uh, but what, in a sense, we've been doing is we've, we've taken uh, this theological doctrine of walking in holiness and we backed up to its foundations looking at this letter to the Colossians. We've considered the new life in Christ, particularly from Ephesians 4. We've considered putting to death the old self, the mortification of sin. We've considered putting on the new self. We've looked Again, in Colossians for these, at Christ, the object of our salvation. We considered last week this idea simply that we, we, we should, we have every reason to, as I say, own the love of God. Uh, this idea that our Father in heaven loves us with an everlasting love. Uh, and today, we'll look at this doctrine of assurance, as I said, all heading toward growing in holiness. Of course, to grow in holiness, one must begin savingly with Christ and be persuaded that Christ loves and owns you. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he refers to Christ who made him his own. And so this is a very important idea as we think about our assurance. 
The main premise of these subjects is that, yes, as the redeemed, a major thrust of our lives will be growing in holiness, such that we are enjoying God and his people more each day. We can't forget that God has saved us for a purpose. Uh, and that purpose, of course, is directly associated with his glory. And he has determined to so vulnerably limit himself to the proclamation of the gospel to that which is in earthen clay pots, people. And that, of course, is one of the reasons that it's so important that we get this right. We can't really move in holiness unless we have a significant measure of assurance from our own belief in God. Not initially or only from our own fruits, but from the nature of faith itself. That God loves us as his own. That the riches of heaven will be ours. That we are resurrected with Christ. That we stand truly and completely forgiven. And that God will strengthen us for holiness. While I've mentioned that this subject of encouragement and assurance and maturity is the primary purpose of the letter in Colossians, we, we could rightly say that this idea of assurance is also the subject matter of every other New Testament letter as well. Because we see that the New Testament letters were written to the redeemed. And they were always written with the purpose of dealing with complications, issues, dealing with theological um, perversions and so forth, such that God's people could not only be assured in what it is that Christ has done through their redemption, but also that they might grow in grace. So assurance is necessary for holiness. And as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, at the end of this sermon, it is possible that it won't seem as weighty to you as it does and has for me. But I will tell you at the outset of this proclamation of the word of God that I am persuaded that this is one of the most important sermons that I have ever preached in my life. Because of the subject matter of the association of our assurance in Christ with a walk of holiness. And so that's what we're looking at today, and I do uh, appeal again to Walter Marshall's great book, The Mystery of Sanctification, for your attentive look. The focus today will, will be on assurance of faith, but I'd like to draw your attention to really two streams, if you will, of assurance of faith. One of those aspects of assurance of faith has to do with what Walter Marshall and others refer to as a reflex act of faith. It's, it's a reflection of what it is that God has done. Uh, it's, uh, there's nothing inappropriate about looking to what it is that God has done in your life as a certain verification that the Lord has, in fact, regenerated you. And we can look, for instance, in Galatians chapter 5 at the fruits of the Spirit, uh, again, recognizing that the evidences of the Spirit's presence are the fruits, right? And so we certainly can affirm that. And we can also, for instance, look at the epistle that, that John wrote, the first epistle that John wrote, and we can look at 
these evidences of the new birth that John speaks of, primarily love for God, love for God's people, and love for his word. And these are all reflex actions, if you will, of our, uh, of our faith, of our saving faith. The problem, uh, if there could be a problem with that, uh, an issue that might make it difficult for us to enjoy the beginnings of assurance, are that they involve us trying to determine and basically affirming that we already have faith in Christ, that we're already a child of God. Now, that's, that's great. It's just that many people struggle with assurance, and we also see that as the Lord made promises to Abraham, and as, for instance, if we look at Abraham as, in fact, the father of the faithful, we see that his assurance was never based on himself. It had nothing to do with who Abraham was. It was completely centered on God himself. One of the great reasons we struggle with holiness is because we have no assurance. And the additional reason that we struggle with holiness is addressed by the Apostle Peter in his second letter that I am hoping to address next week. But today we're looking at assurance. Because the lack of assurance is so prevalent, many students of God's word take that it's therefore normal. In other words, uh, they simply accept that they will typically live in a state where they lack assurance. And one of the things that is important here is, is that the ability to be assured of our faith in some measure, and I'm not referring here to what might be considered complete assurance, which is what the Apostle Paul was aiming for, but this simple idea that we can be assured, that we can enjoy uh, a certain aspect and measure of the assurance of our saving faith is uniquely Protestant. The Roman Catholics reject the idea of assurance. They find that it, it doesn't have a lot of utility because assurance can sometimes incline people to a life of unrighteousness. It, it can incline people not to value the means of grace because they, they find no need for it, because they've already arrived as it were. But what we see is that assurance is not only possible, but it's essential to it. Simple biblical deduction confirms that holiness is necessary to being in heaven and that a measure of direct assurance is necessary to that walk of holiness. Now, one of the reasons, another additional reason that assurance has fallen on the rocks, as they say, is because of an undue emphasis on this idea of justification. Now, justification, of course, is, is an urgently important matter in our salvation. We're, no one's going to heaven unless they're justified by Christ. But because our evangelical culture has tended to summarize 
the sum total of salvation, which is far more expansive than simply justification, because our culture has tended to do that, we find that being justified, because ultimately it's a passive activity in the life of the believer, the believer has absolutely nothing to do with their justification. If that is a summary of salvation, then there, in fact, is nothing left for me to do. And so holiness is seen as simply an option uh, in which I involve myself in the things of God in the margins of my life when I have time. And there's no recognition that a walk of holiness is actually this vocation that God has called us to in which if we follow in his commands in our vocations of God's people, we will find that that is exactly how he intends to carry out his purposes in our lives. As merchants, as mothers, as neighbors. Our walk of holiness is absolutely essential to the purposes of God. It isn't optional. It is the Christian life. It is the essence of the Christian life is holiness. And the very foundation of that begins with simply the idea that I am assured in Christ that God loves me, that he has a purpose for me, that he's completely forgiven me. If we're not firmly believing that the Lord Jesus Christ is talking us up to the Father, then we're, we're going to struggle with the willpower to get up and be faithful to God and to do those hard things and to look at ourselves and see places that we need to go. This squares with the Apostle Paul's goal in the letter, as I said to the Colossians, that they be assured in their faith and that they be mature in their faith. If saving faith in its pure state holds us in suspense, as to our saving relationship to Christ, then in the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you have no hope of heaven or of a loving relationship to the Father, then this thing of saving faith is utterly worthless. Some functionally object to the doctrine of assurance because they're persuaded that it diminishes self-evaluation or they insist that the truly humble will be only tentative in their assurance that to have a sense of certainty in one's relationship to Christ is a sort of presumptuous boasting. Now, perhaps we've been that person, or maybe we've been around those individuals who insist that they're fruit inspectors, right, uh, and that everything has to do with the bearing of fruit, and we uh, don't be fooled. I mean, the Holy Spirit will inevitably bear fruit. As we mentioned before, the seed that falls on the good soil is guaranteed to grow. It will produce fruit. It absolutely will produce fruit. No doubt there are different measures of fruit and so forth and so on. 
And so one of the issues at stake here is this idea, uh, and this also is, is currently a cultural norm in evangelicalism, and that is uh, what is um, apparently or allegedly a sort of humble tentativeness. And they even use the word hope in a way uh, that, again, is sort of tentative and not certain. Well, I, I think that this is what the Lord says, but I'm not sure. And with wringing hands, they, they may say, well, I, 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 I think that I'm going to go to heaven, but, you know, you just never can be sure about that. Or maybe some of these other doctrines of the faith that are absolutely certain and orthodox, there are people that project a certain, frankly, fake humility when they're tentative about them because it seems boastful and arrogant to speak uh, affirming and definitively and passionately on the truths of God. The assurance we're addressing here, as I said, is not that which persuades men that they've already been saved that they're already in a state of grace. Rightly understood, even this reflex assurance doesn't need to breed, pride, to breed pride in men and diminish their discipline and holiness. But before we can have this assurance, this assurance of a reflection of what it is that God has done, we need to have that assurance which is of the essence of faith, that faith in which we are justified and finally saved. Now, the Reformers... Um, it's possible, perhaps, that maybe they went a little bit too far in a reaction against Rome. Uh, because the Reformers, particularly Luther and Calvin, they would hold to this idea that the sum total, complete aspect of assurance is in the essence of saving faith. In other words, if you have saving faith, you will be completely assured. However, that doesn't seem to strike at the reality of our experiences, nor does it really, I think, square ultimately with what the scriptures reveal, but we'll understand, and it's important for us to see the context of the reformers was that that stood in opposition to a rejection of assurance because of its very important aspect. And the reality is, is that we can, I think, speak in terms of completeness regarding the assurance of the essence of faith because... Is there any one more complete than God? <laughs> is, uh, are the promises of God inadequate for you to be ensured, right, of your faith, of your position with God? The assurance which is of the essence of saving faith can still include doubts and fears, but it will provide sufficient foundation to be fully engaged in a walk of holiness. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Assurance doesn't have to be perfect in order to be good and effective. Now, sometimes when we think of the assurance from the promises of God, we may be inclined to think that that's still is not very satisfying because we don't read in the word of God that my personal name is in the word of God and so therefore I can't be assured that Christ, I can I can believe on the one hand that Christ saves people 
But it's hard for me to affirm that Christ has saved me. And so I recognize that there is yet some perhaps questions in your mind about this assurance of the essence of the promises of God. But let's look further as we look into this. And I trust and pray that the Lord will bring some sunshine to your heart. When the psalmist runs into doubt and despondency, recorded in Psalm 42, what what does he do? He has run into uh, quite a challenge. His life is despondent and low. The question asked in Psalm 42, 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then the psalmist says, don't you remember that day when you prayed the prayer? The psalmist says, let me take inventory about what it is that God has done in my life. I I want to find, if I can, a sunny place where I can affirm that I have, in fact, done something that only the fruit of the Spirit can do. Well, you know and I know that the psalmist doesn't say anything like that. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If we're looking for a defect in our person, we will certainly find plenty. And this is what the accuser focuses on. The accuser. Satan. His name is accuser. What does he focus on? Well, he focuses on you. And if you're looking to yourself, foundationally for your assurance he is going to meet his mark and accomplish his goal he can't snatch you out of heaven but he can kind of snatch a bit of heaven out of your soul our focus for our assurance need not be on ourselves because we recognize that Satan's Satan will attack us at that very point. So we don't look to ourselves, we look to God. We look to God. Abraham was urged to trust God. What was Abraham promised? Do you ever wonder why God came to Abraham and to Sarah when he was a really old man and his wife was beyond childbearing years? Do you ever wonder about that? Can you imagine what it would be like if Abraham um, you know, was in his 30s Sarah was apparently a beautiful woman, even in her 90s, but nonetheless, can you imagine if Sarah was just this this young thing? They were in the prime of life. And God promises them not only a child, but a nation. What do you think Abraham and Sarah would think? 
Every family can be a nation. It starts with a child and then a marriage. And then a few more children and a few more generations. No, 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 no. No, that's not what God did. You see, God came to Abraham and Sarah. And what did they say about themselves? Oh, we're as good as dead. We're as good as dead. I mean, they could project forward and think about Ezekiel 37, these bones that were dead. I mean, they're fish food, right? But Abraham had faith. Why? Well, he certainly didn't look to himself and Sarah. He had faith because of what God had said. What God had said. The natural man insists on believing things based on the evidence he can see with his senses. The natural man insists on believing things based on evidence he can see with his senses or feel or touch, apprehend with his own senses. 1 Corinthians one twenty one, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It is the wisdom of the world to insist that we can detect saving faith in ourselves based on what we can see. This is the wisdom of the world. I draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The definition of faith has to do with something that isn't sensory. This passage says that it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. How many professing believers do you know that struggle with the creation of the universe by God? A lot of them do. Why is that? Well, because they insist on the ways of the world. Why can't they just believe what the Bible says? 
Now, we really have a window into what it is that I'm referring to here and what it is that Walter Marshall and others help us with, this assurance that is of the essence of faith. This simple idea that what does believing mean? What does believing mean? Now again, not to strike at self-examination, we'll get to that. We're, we're heading to sanctification and a walk of holiness, right? That's where we're, that's where we're going. That's the, that's the inclination of our hearts as we look at this new year laid out before us and we see what it is that the Lord would have us to do. Of course, in a sense, it won't change year by year, but it seems appropriate that we consider it at the beginning of the year. And recognizing as we back up the foundations of a holy walk in which the Lord does what he does through us, we see this place of assurance. And as I said, there is certainly a place for self-examination, which is essential to growth and holiness. But even to begin this walk, we must have a measure of assurance, which comes not from what we can detect of our faith, but from what it means to believe God. The truthfulness of God's promise of salvation is not based on who we are, but on what God has said in his word. Am I confident that God has forgiven me? When you approach the Lord, what goes through your mind? When you ask him for help, How do you approach the Lord? As a loving father? As a condemning judge? Do you sort of proverbially look at your shoes in shame? The redeemed bear the righteousness of Christ. We have the, the cloak of his righteousness upon us. Are you confident that God has forgiven you, that he loves you, that you have a place in heaven, that he will strengthen you for what lies ahead in this earthly life? As we've mentioned before, when we think about all of the metaphors and similes in the scripture that speak about our relationship to Christ, we think of this brotherly relationship. We think of the son daughter relationship to the Father in heaven. We think of many relationships. We think of that of, of learner of being, uh, as the Lord Jesus said, learn from me, right? Um, and uh, uh, we also think of this idea, the Apostle Paul and the other apostles refer to themselves this, this little word that shows up in the Greek, doulos, slave of Christ. This is a prevailing illustration of our relationship to Christ. Why is that? It's because the demands are so high that it in some ways requires a relationship of master and slave. But we see that it's very, very different from that idea of the world because it is a relationship 
in which we are filled with affection for our master who takes care of us and loves us. But we see that this relationship and what it is that he calls us to is so binding and profound that it requires this sense of connection that is sometimes typified in that relationship. Now, our ability to gain from and understand this idea of assurance from the essence of faith, the, the makeup, what, is, what are the parts of saving faith, our ability to do that, of course, is going to come down to, to the authority of God and his word, which is also at a particularly low ebb in our culture, even among evangelicals, authority. Now, I say this because even among those who embrace the scriptures and faithful doctrine, I see a tendency to stand in judgment over the scriptures. James 4.11 says, But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. To incessantly debate or talk about obeying instead of simply doing what God says. It's our nature to obsess over assessment. I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. It's human nature to obsess, to be obsessive over assessing things. Right? Those of you that are in corporations that have relatively deep management structures recognize that there is a tremendous call and expectation for you to be assessing things. And one of the fascinating aspects about the human mind is that the human mind is persuaded that when I'm assessing things, I'm making them better. So there you are with your clipboard walking around, noting what's broken, and you feel good about it. You've identified several things that are quite serious. So what happens next? Nothing. Often nothing happens next. We're... We've, we have a triplicate report. We've created a spreadsheet. We've written letters. Right? But we've not moved one whit to holiness. Now, there's got to be something to work on, absolutely, as we consider holiness. But nonetheless, are we a people who stop at this aspect of assessment. We're judging the word of God. We're sitting around talking about it. We're debating it. Yes, assessment is important to what it is, how we think, right? We talked about this observing, orienting, deciding, and acting. But to merely assess is not working toward holiness. Our text pinpoints the apostles' struggle for the Colossians, their assurance and accompanying maturity. And we're beginning with that assurance which is of the essence of our saving faith. So let's briefly look at the nature of faith. Again, we're thinking of this assurance which is inherent in saving faith. 
right? We're not looking to ourselves. We're not looking at fruit of the Spirit. We're not even going to assess how it is that we can affirm a creation of love for God, of his people, of his word in our minds. We're not even going to look at that at all. We're going to look at this thing that God has given us, right? And look at God himself. So we're going to look at faith. Now, two of the best definitions of faith are in the catechism. So the shorter catechism, question 86, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Now, at some point in the walk in our church throughout its life, I expect that I'll be able to ask that question and that I'll be overwhelmed with a verbal answer from God's people. And if you would like to say this along with me, I welcome you in that. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. The larger catechism, question 72, what is justifying faith? Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby he being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. It's saving faith. I'm a sinner bound for hell. My only hope is heaven, God. My only hope for heaven is God in Christ. Faith is heartily believing the gospel and resting upon Christ to do what he promised he would do. You say, well, I struggle with my sin. I struggle with remembering sin. I struggle with my past sin. What did God say? Well, he said he might forgive me. No, he didn't say that. He said if I straighten up, he'll wipe away my sins. No, he, he didn't say that. He said, I'll cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, and I'll remember them no more. It comes down to authority, and it's not your authority. What did God say? Do you believe that? It's got nothing to do with your sincerity. It's completely unassociated with any prayer that you've ever prayed. You say, I struggle with how the Lord looks at me. Okay. Because I'm only a human. Well, all right. Well, what did God say? He said, when you get better, I'll love you better. Did he say that? No. No, he didn't say that. I will be your God. That's what he said. 
and you will be my people. By necessity, there's a measure of assurance in this believing. Well, why do I say that? Well, <laughs> it might be helpful to think of some things that aren't faith. Children, we call these antonyms. An antonym up is down. An antonym for faith is wavering, it's doubting. That's an antonym of faith. You say, well, I know that. I feel doubting. Yeah, we do. Because we're on a ship in a storm. But we're not looking to that. We're looking to the promise that God made. By its very nature, believe is assurance of having the thing promised. James insists, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that if there's no measure of assurance in our asking for a thing from Christ, we should not think we will receive it. Now, this may be one of the hardest things in this idea of assurance from the essence of belief. If you don't believe in some measure that God will keep his promise to you, James is saying you shouldn't expect for him to keep that promise because you don't believe it. Now, I'm not saying that, nor is the proposition that you believe it perfectly. But the point is, in belief, there is an essence of assurance that you will receive the thing promised. Not a perfect belief. Abraham had nothing in his person or Sarah as evidences of God's promise for a future. Nothing at all. They simply believe what God said. Was there any doubting in that? I expect so. God has joined confidence and salvation together. I just learned last night that confidence broken down in Latin is with faith. Con fide, with faith. He's also joined believing and salvation inseparably together. Believing. You say, well, I want salvation and assurance without believing. Well, <laughs> man, what you've decided you want is something that God isn't offering. Salvation requires belief, that belief which God gives, and inherent in that belief is a certain aspect of assurance.
If an honest man of means asks a young poor woman to marry him, and he says to her, I will be your husband if you'll have me. She can answer in a number of ways, obviously. And one of the ways that she can answer is that I don't believe what you say. And, of course, if she says, I don't believe what you will say, then she will not, obviously, enjoy being his wife. But she's done something else as well, right? She has brought into question his honesty and his commitment. When I tell God I don't believe what you're saying, then I am impugning the honor of the very being whose name is integrity and faithfulness. There's no expression of humility or meekness in questioning what it is that God has told you in his word. And one of the old synonyms for the Bible is the mouth of God. It was common among the Old Testament saints to be elevated in regaling in their salvation. He is my salvation. He is my God with no thought to their own qualifications. The Apostle Paul encourages this same idea in the combination of the indicative and the imperative that we discussed a few weeks ago. You are this in Christ. Be who you are. The Apostle's point is that our justifying faith brought us into permanent union with Christ with no regard to our qualifications, and we now move forward with this assurance. Do we believe God? The Hebrews received the plundering of their goods with joy because of the hope they had in Christ. Hebrews 10, 34 and 35, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Walter Marshall makes the point that many have wrongly determined they have no assurance because they don't know how to discern it in this assurance, which is of the essence of saving faith. We can't actually become believers unless we actually believe Christ and what he says regarding salvation. If we are to live to God, we must believe as the Apostle Paul did, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this opens up, of course, a world of opportunity for us as God's people 
Do we believe what God said? We're not looking at ourselves. Uh, perhaps you've been in a situation where you have been inclined to make a certain promise. And you've joyfully offered something. And it was accepted and received. I bet that was a good feeling. My master has authorized me to tell you that he has never told a lie. That he's good for his word. That if you believe him, you will be with him. That every promise, as we just sang, is yes and amen. That we are no more secure in Christ here in this sin-stained world than the angels that are in heaven. No more secure. We have every reason to be boldly confident in entering into the things and the challenges of our day because our master has approved of them, he's empowered us in them, we have every reason to be confident and go forward. And I encourage you to take the Lord at his word today. Joyfully consider what the Lord Jesus is saying. And repeat, just as the saints of old did, God is my salvation. I'll trust in no other, not myself, not the fruits of what I see, but in what it is that God has said. Let us pray. Father, we pray that it would be our joy and testimony that we have taken you at your word, that we have regaled in the fact that we have an honorable Savior who tells us the truth, and our Savior has an honorable Father who not only has set forth a plan, but has completely fulfilled every aspect of that plan, just as he has said and determined, and that he has sent the Holy Spirit by way of promise and by way of confirmation of what he has done. And we pray, God, that it would be our boast to boast in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.